all uh, wireless, no laptops or anything else. Make sure we get a good signal. My name is Rob Amarine. The other Rob, not Jones. Don't confuse us. Please don't confuse us. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah. So we're going to get started. There's, if anybody has any other questions, you know, there might be a time after we'll see how much time we have. We've got quite a few here. But you can ask them. But let's try to... Let's try to let the, get through the questions first, let the uh, speakers answer them, and then, because um, I'm sure uh, you know, their questions create more questions, right? So, so we're going to go and get started. Winston, you ready? I, we can't hear Winston. We turned him down. Yeah. Okay. Winston, can you hear us? We're starting to hear you. You're coming in. Winston? Winston, can you try again? Anybody in IT? <laughs> you guys have heard of the ID10T error, right? Yeah, we can do it. Yeah. Write it down if you don't know what it is. Can, can you hear him? Okay. Thumbs up. Can you hear me, Winston? Yeah. 
Yep. Let's get going. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to go get started while we figure this out. So we'll, uh, we'll start some, with some questions here. Micah, this one's for you. <clears throat> Is not the authority submission outdated now? I assume you mean in, in our current culture. Is that what the question is? I think so. Yeah, there's no question about it. And, um, and I think that's why that emphasizes the importance of us understanding this correctly, emphasizes the importance of what Jerry talked about, us seeing the scriptures, the New Testament, through the eyes of the apostles. Um, the world is not going to understand these things, and it's, it's just going to get worse and worse. And the church, institutional church, will follow that, um, that lead from the world. And that just, I think, puts the emphasis on how important it is for us to understand these issues correctly. Okay. Yeah, I can, I, hey. I can uh, hey. have, have a little hard time here. Working. <laughs> just okay. Just so, Winston, we'll get you going here. So there's a question directed to you. How do I practically slow down to rest in the Lord and spend intentional time studying his word when I'm newly married, just out of school, building a career, living in a society that is so fast moving and demanding? I can't hear you. Be flexible, right? Okay, Winston. <laughs> it is, Tom. Okay. Winston, you got me? I got you. Okay, here we go again. How do I practically, practically slow down to rest in the Lord and spend intentional time studying his word when I'm newly married, just out of school, building a career, and live in a society that's so fast moving and demanding? Ultimately, you got to decide what's most important in your life. And come to the realization that all of that, all that you just mentioned, is not going to come to the fruition that God intended it to unless you first... Keep your soul healthy. And as, as we've talked, and I'm sure these other fellows have too in different ways, without that, what I call listening time with God, daily, and maybe, maybe more times than once daily, uh, you're, we're going to be swept up by the ways of the world. So you just got to decide. It's 
it's like it, it's like if you had severe diabetes. I have an idea that you'd make priority taking your insulin. It's no different. How that looks is every man's got to sort it out for himself. But I think one of the good sources is some of these guys have been walking with Jesus uh, pick their brain and see what they've done and pick up some application techniques. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Agree in spades with everything Winston said. I'll just say to you, young guys. This Jerry, is a, I can't hear you, buddy. Well, it's not. It's not, not. I'm not addressing you, Winston. I knew my comments yesterday were going to ricochet. <laughs> Winston always brings out my flesh. <laughs> yeah, to, to you young guys, the, this thing of, of the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, it is a young man's game. If you think it's going to get easier as you get older, you've got another thing coming. If you think you can acquire them when you're as old as the old buzzards in here, you've got another thing coming. It's an old man's game. I mean, a young man's game. Develop the habits now. Good. Okay, let's um, let's throw this one out to the group. It's an easy one. Softball here. How do I handle an unsubmissive wife? Well, I, you know, I, I have one. Of, this isn't. She won't hear what I say, will she? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I think uh, Micah, when he taught, he hit on what is one of the key things when it comes to the scripture, which is the issue of authority. Like authority has been an issue with man and God uh, from the beginning. And so I think, you know, our, our charge in when you think about Ephesians five, when it talks about husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her. And he goes on to talk about washing her in the word. And a, a, a non-submissive wife is likely a product of lack of washing in the word. And so I just encourage you guy get started there. Start with what the scripture says and allow the word to do what the word says it does. It's living. It's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and and introduce that, and then uh, and then let the word do what it does. Somebody's got to clean that one up. I think it starts with reviewing the scripture what the scripture has to say about this. And so you take her to the important passages and you read through them and you ask questions and you, you massage these things out. And that's not a one-time deal. Maybe it's a one-time deal. That, that would be wonderful. But it's a process. And 
as that process plays out, if there is a rebellion and she's digging her heels in, then I think, again, it's a process. It's not just a, you know, a one-time thing. But eventually, if there's a wife that's disobedient, where do we go next? And I think it's discipline. And uh, that can play out in real life in a lot of different ways. But, but that, is the, um, that is the tool. That's the biblical response uh, that God gives us in Scripture. Good. I just want to add, oh, sorry, one more thing on this submission thing, just as a cautionary thing. Uh, and I know you, I think it was mentioned, but just for all clarity is that, you know, when we talk about submission, it's about the commands of God. And so uh, more often than not, I find submission issues are the commands of man and, and where, where somebody wants to apply this. And that's an area where I think as, a, as you have just have to be very careful in terms of how and where and what you view as a uh, submission uh, issue. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sure. We got to get a mic, though, so we're recording this. So I've worked with this. I've been struggling with this for a couple of years. And unless I submit to Christ, how's my wife going to submit to me? So I, I turn my focus on Christ as I'm submitting to you, Jesus. And then she sees that. In me, my change, my transformation, my my personality changes. She submits to me more as I submit to Christ. Okay, Robert, real quick. <clears throat> yep. um, obviously, these guys are, are nailing it on the head of we're accountable for how we we handle that. It's it starts with us. It starts with uh, everything we're saying. But just a, a suggestion, if you can find it, you might not be able to. But if you can find uh, godly women for her to 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 be with um, do that okay so kind of uh, taking on the back of that another question on marriage oh we got a question <clears throat> In the Bible, uh, Hebrew, Hebrew tradition is that uh, it's called the law of Sarah. What happened during the time of Abraham is when he went to different places and told his wife to lie. Say that you're not my wife because if you do, they'll kill me. She followed him. Now, she could have said, what? No, I'm not doing that. She could have been stubborn. But she obeyed, did what he said. And when he left both those places... He left with all kinds of stuff. God rewarded them, rewarded her with all kinds of material possessions, cows, animals, all kinds of stuff because she listened to him, even though he was wrong. Because we know we have a kingship in our families, and God speaks to us. God, I'm not saying God doesn't speak to women. He does, but it's different than us. And we have a direct line to God. So when we're trying to follow him, even if we make mistakes... God will take our mistakes and fix them. But if she goes against that, then she's cursing the whole household because she's not following her husband. She has a choice to be blessed or cursed. Right. You have a question in there? Okay. Guys, let's keep it to questions. It's for the speakers. uh, So if marriage is being yoked together, 
How does it apply to 2 Corinthians 6 when one spouse is a non-believer? So if marriage is being yoked together, I think it's, you know, it goes along with this, this idea of if your wife's a believer, then you have some foundation. If your wife's not a believer, how does that work with relating to her? First Corinthians 7 addresses that issue uh, of one believer married to an unbeliever. And Paul's sort of the bottom line of that is Paul says to the believer, stay in the marriage. Do not initiate a divorce. And the other hand, if the unbeliever leaves, then let him go. And by my reading, the, the believer then who has been abandoned by the spouse, the unbelieving spouse, is then free to remarry. Question? Micah, you, you said that the next step in rebellion is discipline, which I agree. My question is, how do you minister to a husband whose wife needs to go to the next step, which is discipline. What, what steps of discipline are you stating are the process to try to get her to see the truth and submit to what that truth is? Again, this is a process. Um, there's a lot of, I think, that would be in between that is application that we're not speaking to. But ultimately, the recourse is is outlined in, in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Practicing discipline. Okay. So, so from my observation of this scripture... I'm allowed to separate, but I'm not allowed to seek other. So separation is reconciliation for marriage, but ultimately I do have the authority to separate in order for that discipline to set course to try to show the woman that I love this is the course that God wants us to be the head of, and it needs to be in that order. Would you agree with that? I think so. And Yeah, when there's separation in marriage, the goal is always... Reunion, for sure. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Okay. So Winston is back at you. <clears throat> can you hear me? I can. All right. So it says, love your neighbor as yourself. What does yourself mean? And then... Um, And then we are sinners, does forgiveness help answer that? And it says, can Winston list seven qualities? Sounds to me like there's two or three questions there. Those seven yeah. qualities, if, if you're referring to the seven qualities in Second Peter 1, he starts out with virtue, knowledge, self-control, Perseverance, godliness, 
phileo love or brotherly kindness, depending on your translation, and agape love. Those are the seven qualities, if that's what you're talking about. Now, what was the other part of the question? So the other part was, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean yourself? And, you know, I guess it's tying in forgiveness, you know, loving yourself, right? Okay. Well, why don't – the golden rule says treat others as you want to be treated. But the high, as, as Peter points out, the ultimate goal is agape love. And that's, that's loving others irrespective of how they treat us. Whoever answered that, come back at me. I'm not sure I'm, not sure I'm on the same frequency with you. Yeah, AJ, wait, grab a, grab a mic. But he's, uh, they're asking, what does love yourself mean? One of the things that that we as Christians have to have to come to grips with that God loves us unconditionally. That's called grace. And so on the one hand, we have to accept ourselves as we are as a Christian. That doesn't mean that we ignore obedience. The need for for repentance and contrite heart for our sins, but we have to accept ourselves as God has declared us as adopted children. And if we don't, then we've set our standard higher than God's, and that's blasphemy. And the reason that's so important, and particularly in our culture today with all the wokeness, is that only when I accept myself because of God's acceptance of me, can I then let, when other people don't accept me, I now put myself in a position where I can let it be their problem instead of mine. And that's tremendous, tremendous freedom in Christ. That's not in any way to negate our responsibility of obedience and lordship and so on, that whole side of it. But to love ourselves, I think, ultimately is to accept ourselves as adopted sons of God. And accept ourselves on the same standard he accepts us. Because without that, we're not secure. And without that secure, then we're going to be playing to the audience of others instead of the audience of God. I'm not sure I I swung at the, the right pitch, but anyway, come back at me if you want. We're good? Okay. So, uh, Justin, this is for you on discipleship. Is there ever a time to let your student go if he's just not making an effort? If so, how do you tell when it's time to let him go? 
Um, I, I guess I can't speak for everyone, but for, for me, usually when things go separate ways, it's not my choice. So it's usually the guy, huh. sorry for that little girly, whatever that was. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, it t- typically, if if there is if if there is a severance of of that relationship, it usually goes that way. But I think it's a fair question of, you know, you w- you want guys that are committed, you want guys that are uh, after it, you want guys that are genuinely thinking and, and trying. Um, so I. If I I've rarely come across I guess again where the person keeps coming back and that's happened, and I've had times where I've hopefully gently you know suggested to the person like hey do you, do you want this or not like what do you what do you want out of this um, if you don't want it like we don't have I mean we don't have to force this so I, I mean I've had that um, again personally uh, other people might disagree I. I try to not end it. I had, I never have. Justin, I might, I might just, I think, probably say the same thing you're saying, but I find that generally when you start meeting with a guy, why, you know, he's he makes some kind of a, a an expression of his uh, his desire, and so there's a there's a at least an inherent uh, commitment, and so if he moves along and and he and he's not not responding as he indicated he wanted to, then I I simply say let's review here, because one of the rules that I always tell a guy when we start are two rules is one is you can quit any time you want and I can quit any time I want. And so that gives him liberty. And so then I'll say, you remember the two rules I said, and then let me just ask you because it seems like you're showing less interest than you were to begin with. And let me just tell you, if if you've gotten to a point where this isn't of value to you, hey, hey, just if you've got other things that are more important, go do them. You're not going to affect our friendship at all. And and sometimes the guy will say, yeah, I'm just jammed up right now. Or he'll say, no, I need to kick myself in the butt and get to going again. But I just put it in his court and let him decide. Good. Okay. It's coming back to you, Micah. Um, What about Martin Luther disobeying, disobeying the Pope? Well, I don't think Winston. The, the Pope. Yeah, you talking about Winston? Or you talking about? Uh, no, no. That is heresy, guys. That's heresy. I don't think there's any biblical reason why the Pope had to be considered Martin Luther's leader. Uh, we talked yesterday. The you get to choose who your leaders are. And, uh, again, that's a, that's a good news, bad news situation. It's, that's good news that it's, you get to do that. Bad news is you have to stand before Christ and defend your decision. But it, in the same way, it's, there's no 
biblical reason why your pastor or your elder has to be the leader that you choose uh, to carry out Hebrews 13, 17? It can be, for sure. But that's your choice. And, and so there's, there's no reason, biblically, why the Pope would have had to be, to be considered Martin Luther's leader in the sense of Hebrews 13, 17. Okay. Anyone else, Ralph? Just to add to that, my, my impression of the Reformation is that Luther was not trying to split the church. He wanted to reform it, and his expectation was that Rome would see the um, value of his reasoning and, and go along. So it truly was a reformation, not an attempt to split the church. And they excommunicated him. So Ephesians 6, 1 through 2 states that children are to obey their parents. Is there an age limit? And why why are we commanded to honor our father and mother? I guess that, those are two questions there. Well, <laughs> I know you passed the mic, hot potato. Um, so maybe I'll just talk about the first question is, you know, is there an age of, uh, of obedience? Um, I don't know. I don't know that the Bible speaks specifically of an age of obedience. You get perspective on an age of accountability. But I think that children in terms of obedience, I mean, as they are under your roof and under your leadership, then. I think that applies. And, you know, we talked about, you know, in the uh, the difference in leadership for females versus males, being under the headship of the father up until she transitions to the to the husband. Um, and then for the for the males that, you know, as they transition out of the house, then, you know, they are transitioning into a, uh, you know, into a new into a new stage. And so I think I don't think that it's age defined specifically. The second question, why do we honor our parents? I think it was tying in, is that a way to, is that why we're commanded to honor our parents, you know, in terms of going beyond the age limit that we're, we're still commanded to honor our mother and father, but I don't think honor means command, so. Yeah, yeah, they're two different verbs, um, and I see it as the children is addressed, that's the obedience, so that's for sure for children. Honor your parents, I think that's more universal without an age limit. So that that's starts when you're a kid, that goes throughout life, and that, that command never ends. I think uh, the word honor there means to attach, attach a high value. And if you remember, if we go to the Ten Commandments, even back then, God, God put that in the Ten Commandments because the, the family is the basic unit of all society. And we're seeing it in our country today that when that falls apart, uh, society doesn't work. And so, uh, so honoring our parents is, is, is just foundational to how God set up the whole thing from the very beginning. 
So uh, irrespective, irrespective of how our parents treat us, we are to honor them and attach authority, attach, attach uh, value to them, not necessarily because how they treat us, but because God is giving us exactly the parents he wants us to have. My dad was an alcoholic. He was, don't get me wrong, he was a good dad, but he was an alcoholic. But I'm, I'm, I'm totally grateful that I had him for a dad because God appointed him my dad. Therefore, when we honor our parents, we're really honoring God and his choice. Just to piggyback on that, I think that's a great illustration of love, too. I think why that's one reason why this command is so fundamental. It starts in the home, starts with children to their parents. If we have to, you know, that verb to value, put, put in a, a price on the value of your parents. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's extremely, extremely difficult. But that's, that's a calculation that you have to make. It's an appraisal. And I think it's the same when we decide to love in an agape sense. We're saying... This person, this person may be very easy to love. This person, we've all had this experience, may be very, very difficult to love. But I need to make a calculation in my mind to say, what is this person's worth? To me, temporally, looking through my earthly lens, I don't see much value here. But let me think about this from a biblical, from an eternal standpoint. God sent his son to die on the cross for this person. That's how much God values this person. And I need to take that take my earthly viewpoint away, I need to put on my, my spiritual lens and I need to be able to see this person and place the same value on this person to love that person that God did when he sent his, his son Jesus to die for that person. So that process of honoring your parents uh, where you put a value on your parents irrespective of, of what their earthly value really is, it's the same, it's the same uh, process that you go through in learning how to love with an agape love. Good. How are we doing on time? What we got? Still 15? Okay, good. <clears throat> so it's back to uh, discipleship, Justin. Um, what would you say to a guy that thinks the idea of missing out is not how God works? You talk, talk about missing out you know, on, on the opportunities for ministry, but what do you say to a guy that says, I don't think that's how God works? You know, I, I'm not missing out with God. We've talked about it a lot this weekend. Um, purpose. And what's the point of us being here? And Jerry just went through the history of the world. And why is God doing anything he's doing? And is he in control of what comes into your life or not? And so it seems to me that God is giving you what he's given you, and that, that's the long list, intellect, you know, gifts, whatever he's given you, and then he's also given you opportunity. Again, why? And so 
as I understand uh, the scriptures, he's doing it for a reason. And he's doing it for uh, you. And so if you don't take part in what he has for you, um, I I question if you, you know, are going to grow into the person God wants you to be. I question if, as harsh as this may sound, do you even believe? Do you even trust that God does have your best interest in mind? Do you even trust that he is putting these uh, situations in your life and why? So it's a, it's a question of faith deep down. Um, so my suggestion is you would be missing out big time if you are not attuned to that. And by the way, easy for me to say, and I miss it all the time. And so that's, that's the problem. That's the battle of viewing life correctly. And we miss out when we don't. I'll just add one quick thing because it's a plug for downstairs. I mean, I would ask a guy like that if he's ever spent any time taking a look at what the Bible says about rewards and hop into that book for a little while just to understand. Because if somebody doesn't perceive that God has anything in it for them, I think they're missing a key part of what the Scripture teaches. I mean, you look in 1 Corinthians 3, it's a great place to start. But I've had Christians challenge me over the years, uh, literally, that God isn't a reward-based God. But... Every single time I find out that they have spent no time searching the scripture for the concept. And then as they do, they realize the plan that God has. And God not only gives us the opportunity, but he's got something in it for us. And when a man realizes that, I think that really their perspective changes. Okay, good. Winston is back at you. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious for anything. Is there any circumstance when anxiety is biblical? Read, read that again, uh, please. <clears throat> so Philippians 4, 6, of course, do not be anxious for anything. Is there any circumstance when anxiety is biblical? I suppose if I woke up and a rattlesnake was in my bed, it might be. There, there's one. There's one. You know, there's, there's biblical fear. We fear God. Sure there is. Yeah. But the anxiety that Jesus is talking about is... It's when is when our hope is so placed in the temporal at the expense of the eternal. That's the anxiety that he's talking about. When I'm hoping more in what I can do and what my circumstances can do for me than what God will and can do for me. That's the anxiety he's talking about. Or said simply, when my temporal hope, which we all have to have and live by, and and there's nothing wrong with it at all, it becomes wrong when it outweighs my trust in Jesus. And when that happens, then I go anxiety because I know I'm out of control. I may not even think that 
cerebrally, but that's that's what happens to us. Therefore, we get into the scriptures constantly and we have to. And we've been pounding the drum of that we've got to have time to feed our soul and stay calibrated uh, for the kingdom of God. And we do that so that we can maintain our hope, our ultimate hope in Christ and not in our circumstances or ourselves. Anyone else want to add to that? Yeah, Dave. Learning this weekend about desire, does when desire overcomes reason, thank you, Josh, is that when you, a red flag for when the focus is shift from the eternal to the temporal? All right, Dave, say that one more time, if you would, please. Oh, I knew you were going to do that. We were talking about desire being stronger than reason this weekend. And when uh, desire wins over reason, as it sometimes does, is that is that a red flag that our focus is shifting to the temporal instead of the eternal, thus causing the anxiety, the the unbiblical anxiety to um, appear? Yep. Yes, it certainly can. But see, we all are challenged. We are all challenged with this thing called coveting. Paul calls it idolatry in, in Colossians 3, 5. Or greed. And it, it is when that as you have already said, the desire. The challenge with that, Dave, is we all have desires, but when do I when does my when does my desire cross to expectation? I can even anticipate something, but and that but if it becomes an expectation, then I've crossed the line. The challenge with that, Dave, is that's an invisible line, and, and my conscience doesn't doesn't do me a lot of good. So I think there are some indicators. But it's a, it's a challenge, this whole thing of coveting. As Paul said in, in chapter 7 of Romans, that he, he had a hard time identifying coveting without the law. But I think there's a couple of three indicators that at least may give us a red flag or a heads up. One, one is be, would be uh, disappointment. A second one would be ingratitude. And a third one could be uh, anger and stress. 
But I'd have to tell you for myself, I still don't know for sure. Coveting is a tough one. It is a tough one. I'm sorry, say that again. I say coveting is or is a tough one. And but boy it's uh, but it's pernicious if we allow it to to be a controlling part of our lives. So we have legitimate desires in the eternal and maybe not so legitimate desires. Well, and, and you you can have de- you can have legitimate desires in the temporal. See, I can desire when I pray. If if I pray and I ask God for something, it's a desire, and He tells us in James, "You have not because you ask not." So I can ask. But then, am I willing to live with his answer? If he says no, am I just as content with it as if he says yes? If I'm not, then I've crossed that line. And then that's when disappointment, maybe ingratitude and so on that I mentioned will happen, which may be an indication that I've got to go back and take some inventory. As well as anxiety and the stress part there. Yes. Thanks or ingratitude, I think, is a quick one for us to test test ourselves, see how we're doing. A question. No, sorry. A question for Jerry. Um, so you said today... I liked your comment of knowledge leads to pride. So I think in my – and then you used an example. I just want you to expound upon it. When you feel like – I feel like that's the enemy, especially with my walk, is pride, especially in men. How do you fight that a daily battle with something like that? My brother, it is true that knowledge – makes arrogant. But let me suggest to you that that was not the original intent on the part of God. He follows that statement in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge makes arrogant but love edifies, with the statement that if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, the purpose of knowledge is getting to know the Lord, learning how to love him, learning how to love people, etc. But having said that, the man who understands what, he's, what he has gotten himself into in, in the knowledge game understands, if his spiritual head is screwed on, that he knows so very little. The more you know, the more you realize how little you know. And so knowledge was originally meant by God not to make us proud, but to humble us. And so you just have to remind yourself that that's the case. You, you can compare yourself to other people, but so what? You know, in, 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 the, in the cockroach world, I'm sure there's smart cockroaches and dumb cockroaches. Who cares? It doesn't make any difference. We're a bunch of cockroaches. So... Your view of yourself, the 
appreciably influences your view of knowledge. Brian? Um, How do you fight against apathy and specifically apathy towards, like, scripture and pursuing God? Like, it's, <laughs> I mean, any, any of you, uh, but yeah, just, you know, I think it's easy sometimes to feel discouraged, bogged down, whatever, and it's easy to feel resigned and kind of give up and feel apathetic towards pursuing those things. So just kind of how maybe in your personal lives you've addressed some of that and um, fight against that. Ryan, it seems to me that the the feelings come and go. You feel close to God at one moment, and the next day you do not feel close to God. And the guys that, that I know that I would say to you, Ryan, go follow him because he's following Jesus. Watch what he does. Emulate him. Those guys to a man all have in common the difference between the tortoise and the hare. They may not be rabbits. They may not have be speed demons. But they're like the tortoise, and they never, ever quit. Those are the guys that are going to finish. So you just stay in the game. And if, if your emotional closeness is not where you like, say, Lord, I, I really miss those feelings. I'd really like to have them back. But as I evaluate that, what, what I realize, Ryan, is in some sense, I've become an idolater when I do that. In effect, what I'm saying to God is it's the feelings that I really value as opposed to you. And that's what part of what I was talking about when I was saying there, there's this difference between God as I wish him to be and God as he really is. The God I wish, wish to be would give me wonderful feelings all the time. He doesn't exist. And do I trust him enough in his sovereignty to give me what I need when I need it? One thing I'll add to that is just, and you've heard this idea of no Lone Ranger believers. If you want a single tactical method to resist apathy, find another brother who will help keep you accountable. Find somebody else that you can walk this this walk of these disciplines. It's amazing what we'll do when we have somebody else that we've we're leaning on, they're leaning on us and can move us out of those ruts of apathy and get us back on track of the things uh, the things that matter. One thing I'd add, um, just to keep plugging away at, at ministry, but it makes me think of at, at work I manage a couple teams, and there's people that do a good job, and then they start doing good, and they think they're smart, and they just get lazy. They'll just coast. 
And it's as a, as a manager, I think it's easier to be like, okay, that guy's a worse. That, that person's doing worse. Let's take away. Let's take away from them because they're not doing a good job. And what I've found is giving them more, giving them more responsibility, giving them more uh, buy-in to what we're doing, what we're building, letting them do training, having them teach other people, uh, changes that, changes their, their work ethic. It's not perfect, but I think that God gives us ministry to keep us in the game. It's not a, you know, a, a fix-all. I think these guys are giving great ideas and thoughts, but if you are if you have a lifestyle of giving your life to, to people and talking to people about God and his word, um, again, I'm lazy. So it, it, if I didn't have that, I would be what you're saying. So. Okay, we have a few more minutes. We'll let you go. So several times over this weekend, I've heard that um, God will not reveal himself to someone that has not fully committed. What do you say about situations in the Bible, such as Saul on the road to Damascus? Um, how, how do you reconcile the difference of that statement versus evidence where God has revealed himself to someone that hasn't committed 100%. That's to anybody. Remember that let's take Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. That first bolus of faith has to be from God. He must reveal himself. So, absent that, you can't get off the launching pad. Now, having received that gift, you now become a steward of that most precious gift. And how you steward it is now on your shoulders. You can use it well or you can use it poorly. But my brother, let me suggest to you that the the first objective of the gospel after that initial bolus of faith, after that's done, The objective of the gospel then becomes to break your will. And I don't I can't remember any any, what what specifically was said, but I'd suggest to you that absent a broken will, you cannot you cannot trust that God is going to relate to you. Does that help? So guys, we're up on time here. I want to encourage you to, as you're going down the mountain today, that you're going to have questions that are going to come up a day, week, month later. You know, reach out to these guys. These guys are available. Um, You know, get their contact information.